raising money for the purposes of buying multifamily assets is not really one business. It's actually two businesses. And you have to take each of those businesses very seriously and approach them each in the correct way. So one business is the real estate side. And, you know, you've got to be able to find real estate. You've got to be able to buy it right. You've got to be able to underwrite it correctly. And you've got to be able to execute the business plan uh, properly. The other side of the business is the raising money side of the business. And it's a completely different thing. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, g'day, guys, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, the number one podcast geared towards educating investors and entrepreneurs who want to break into the U.S. market and start buying cash-flowing deals. From Los Angeles, I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, as you know, it is my job to explore, dissect, and interview the cream of the crop when it comes to real estate investing here in the United States. And the reason that I do that is so I can educate you guys, so you guys can go out and make the right decisions when it comes to investing for cash flow to create long-term wealth and financial freedom. If you are new to this show, then welcome. I welcome you to this show and I encourage you to go back and start from the beginning and work your way through each and every episode and listen to the incredible content that my guests have given to this show. You can find this show on all the platforms, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, wherever you podcast, I will be. Remember to hit subscribe and each and every week you'll be notified when the latest cracking episode is launched. Before we dive into today's show and I introduce you to the cracking entrepreneur, remember that I do have a free ebook. And if you want to get your hands on this free ebook, it is pretty simple. Firstly, all you need to do is jump on iTunes and leave the show a review. It helps to show iTunes that we're creating an awesome community of entrepreneurs who want to learn more about investing here in the United States. Once you've left that comment on iTunes, shoot me a screenshot of that comment to info, that's I-N-F-O at rsnpropertygroup.com. And in return, I will send you my brand spanking new ebook called The Art and Science of Raising Capital Like a Pro, The 4P Rule. And it is the book, a very simple ebook, which is set up to change your mindset about the benefits of raising capital to start going out and getting more deals done. And the 4Ps are pretty simple. It is professionalism. It is pitch practice and patience. Those four Ps are the things that I've seen in myself and in other successful syndicators who go out and raise capital successfully. Remember, if you want to get your hands on this free ebook, jump on iTunes, leave the show a five-star review, then shoot me the screenshot at info at rsnpropertygroup.com. Also, remember, spots are filling up really quickly in my mentorship program here in 2017. And if you want to start learning about how to successfully close on your first multifamily deal, then this mentorship program is for you. I walk you through the A to Z of multifamily investing, from analyzing and choosing the right markets, to building your right team, to close, how to close on a deal and obtain the best financing. And to top it all off, I give you the tools to start raising capital successfully as a newbie so you can get more deals done. 
done and you can grow your net worth. I help you establish your inner key person of influence and help you create a cracking personal brand. If you are interested in taking that next step and you want to get involved in my mentorship program, it's pretty easy. Again, shoot me an email at info, I-N-F-O at rsnpropertygroup.com and put in the subject line, mentorship program. Okay, lastly, if you do have any comments or feedback for this show, I love hearing from my loyal listeners. And the easiest way you can do that is jump on my website at rsnpropertygroup.com forward slash podcast. And remember to leave some comments in the show section of any of the shows that you do like. I love hearing from you guys. It helps me create an even better show and it helps me motivate to you know create, giving you the best content that I possibly can. So you guys can go out there and start successfully investing here in the United States. All right, guys, let's get cracking and into today's show. Today in the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Brian Burke, multifamily syndicator extraordinaire. Brian is the president and CEO of Praxis Capital, which he founded back in 2001. Praxis operates on multiple platforms, currently managing active syndications for acquisitions of single-family, multifamily, opportunistic residential assets in U.S. growth markets. A bit of background about Brian that he started investing way back in 1989, and since then, he has acquired over 700 properties, including over 1,000 units. He's also handy when it comes to writing software, and he has written his own proprietary software, which has aided in the acquisition of his portfolio over his career to date. Bryson is a resident of Northern California and is an avid aviation enthusiast, which he is a licensed pilot for both helicopters and airplanes. So without further ado, let's get him out here. G'day, Brian. Welcome to the show. How you doing, Reed? Thanks for having me. Mate, my pleasure. Um, before we dive into it, 1989, I was, uh, it was awesome to see you've been investing since way back since then. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I was uh, I was young and didn't even know what the heck I was doing, and that was a long time ago. It's amazing how far you can come in that amount of time. I don't want to uh, give away too much of my age, but I definitely was three years old in 1989, so uh, millennial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I was only 20, so it's a pretty young age to get started in real estate. Nice, man. And and we just spoke a little bit offline. You are you know up in the thick of it in uh, near, near Silicon Valley, right? So I'm sure you're seeing a lot of millennials. Um, which we probably will dive into a little bit about capital raising in later in the show. Are you surrounded by young millennial tech guys up in that area? You know, we do have a lot of that. I'm north of San Francisco, which is in the wine country, actually. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have a little bit less of that influence. But boy, you get down south of the Golden Gate and, you know, there's definitely a, a very tech heavy presence down there for sure. <laughs> well, uh, I, I do know, and this is a little bit off topic, but um, there's a lot of tech, quote unquote, with the uh, the cultivation industry. And I'll leave it at cultivation, if you know what I mean, up in the uh, Sonoma Valley, um, which I have heard about, you know, Patch of Land, who's a crowdfunding website here in, in California, is trying to start patch of grass which is kind of interesting but uh <laughs> oh that's a new one <laughs> but mate before we do dive into the nuts and bolts of today's show i do want to elaborate a little bit more on your background so can you tell the listeners you know how you got started investing in real estate particularly way back when you're 20 years old well you know i i got started uh, just kind of on a bit of a whim i i bought a um a mobile home and rented it out and uh, i didn't even own my own house yet and uh, it was kind of an experiment for me because I, I I wanted to get into real estate. I wasn't sure if it was really something I was going to make a career out of, but I certainly thought it was smart to invest in in real estate. And I know that people who had 
tended to do better later in life uh, for having done so. So I thought I'd give it a shot. I did. Didn't have the greatest experience, but still fell in love with the concept and and then uh, kind of grew that over time. You know, in, uh, in the mid-90s, I started a house flipping business and, and I was doing about uh, six or eight houses a year. And then meanwhile, I was uh, making a living in law enforcement. And then uh, after a while, uh, I found that uh, the, the law enforcement job was actually getting in the way of my real estate business and that uh, it, was, it was probably costing me more money to be there than I was earning by being there. So uh, I, I left that job and, uh, and thought the best way for me to uh, leverage my career was to raise money from others. And so uh, I, I didn't have any of my own. It was really my only option. So uh, I, uh, I said, I'm going to raise money from the guys I work with. So when I, when I left the department, I put in my two weeks notice. I said, guys, I'm putting on a little real estate thing at the community center. I want all you guys to come. And I'm going to talk about what I'm doing in real estate. So all the guys from the station showed up. Uh, I, I showed them what I was doing in real estate. I left that meeting with 28 investors with guns. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty, pretty incredible story. But the, the whole, I want to talk a little bit about your legal, what persuaded you to get involved and, you know, was there a, I'm sick of my day job or was it a sort of more just a natural progression or just the fact that it was getting in, in the way of your, your business and, and you were earning more money on your side hustle than, you know, being, being in law enforcement? I think for me, it was really that I just, I loved real estate and the, just the concept of growing a real estate business just seemed really interesting to me. And, and I, I actually started my very first investment that I made that one I told you about I was actually at that time working as a grocery clerk. <laughs> and so, I, you know, like I said, I didn't even own my own house yet. And so I, throughout my entire uh, career in law enforcement, I was with the department for 14 years. I was doing real estate on the side the entire time. And the great thing about that job is it was evenings and weekends. So I basically had the whole business week off and it, it allowed me to grow a business. And eventually, you know, you grow it to a point where you're like, gosh, you know, this thing is actually working out really, really well. You know, I should take this to the next level. So it was much less a factor of, you know, sick of the day job kind of thing. And just much more so that, you know, the, the business evolves and eventually you get to that point where it makes sense to, to just go all in. Well, first of all, I guess it'd be congratulations because a lot of people who do listen to this show are avid you know, side hustler, real estate guys who try to balance that, you know, trying to take calls in the hallway whilst at their day job. So any advice for those type of people who try to make that transition, you know, you being in law enforcement, were you having to make, you know, answer phone calls from your contractor or, you know, broker about a particular deal whilst you're still working? Well, I, I think it, you, you have to be able to balance everything. You know, there's, there, there's home life, there's, uh, there's your, your day job, so to speak, or night, whichever the case may be. And then there's your, your business and you have to be able to manage them all. And it is very challenging. And, you know, at the time I was in my twenties, you're a lot more energetic in your twenties than you are in your forties. So it was much easier to do kind of three jobs at the time. Uh, but, uh, I, I think, you know, I look back to my story and I think it, it is it advice or motivation that people that are in that situation need. And, and to me, I think it's motivation because you can have all the advice in the world, but if you aren't motivated to do uh, this business, you're, you're going to fall flat. So, you know, my, my word of motivation would be, you know, I started this business at 20 years old with no money. And now our, our firm has $100 million in assets under management. And last year, we bought $50 million worth of real estate. So if I can do that, if I can take the business from where I started it to where it is today, 
you know, I'd say anybody can, and but you can only do it if you get up every morning and make this a priority and 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 take steps, active steps toward accomplishing your objective. No, I think that's hugely, hugely important advice because a lot of people out there think it's, uh, you know, you go to seminars, you go to those gurus and you think, oh, this is going to be done in 12, I'm going to be out of the, out of the rat race in 12 months, but I'm sure you will, will uh, you know, you said you're in the force for 14 years and you're doing real estate the entire time. So it goes to show how how much, how long it can sometimes take to break out of that rat race to to be an active full-time investor, correct? It really does. It takes a long time. And people <clears throat> people are looking for how do they the quick and easy way out. And there really isn't one. And you know, I do a lot of public speaking and and when I do these, you know, you're used to like the real estate club type public speaking where the presenter is up there and, and has something to sell you at the end of the presentation, like a course or books or you know, whatever. And when I when I do these presentations, I don't have anything to sell. So I always tell people, you know, when I'm up there, it's like, you know, the only people who are going to tell you that this business is easy is somebody who's going to try to sell you a course on how to do it at the end of the talk. <laughs> I'm here to tell you how hard this is because that's the real truth. This business is hard. And if you want to do it, you've got to be 100% all in and committed and, and you really have to go for it. You can't just do, you know, a, a half-baked attempt. Yeah, half-assed job, as I like to say, in Australia. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, mate, let's dive into the nuts and bolts of today's show. We, we, today's show is all about, you know, performing for your investors and how you create a culture of, you know, trying to keep them happy at the same time as making sure that you're managing the property and managing their expectations. I know you briefly touched on the fact that when you left your your law enforcement job, you told your buddies at, at the department to come down to the local, uh, you know, the, the local community center. Was that just a uh, a natural progression, or was it more that you were looking for capital at that particular point in time? And you know, because that's always the hard part that people are like, I want to do this, but I don't necessarily have the capital to go out and close on you know fifty million dollars worth of real estate or even a million dollars worth of real estate. So. What was that mindset for you when you said to the guys, let's go down to the community center and I'm going to put it all out in the line and I'm going to be really vulnerable and you know, hopefully you will, will you know, receive that well and I can get some investors out of it? Well, the, the catalyst was that uh, I, I didn't have the funds to do it on my own, so I really had no choice. You know, I had, it was a successful business and it was making money, but to, to, this is a very capital-intensive business, real estate is. It, it's not something where you can take a small amount of money and, and really make a splash, especially if you're in California. And I suppose in some states you can. But here where we're buying real estate in the you know, two, three, four, five, six hundred thousand dollars $600,000 price ranges or maybe even higher at that time when I was getting started – it it was uh, it just required capital and my my favorite way to acquire at the time was to buy on the courthouse steps and uh, to do that required all cash to make your purchase so that meant you know having a, a a pretty good sizable amount of equity sitting on the sideline ready to go that's discretionary capital was the only way to make that work so I really did it because that's that was the only way and it's it's still the way we operate this business you know now we're buying properties that are uh, 10, 15, or $20 million. And again, you're right back in that same scenario where you know, you've got to raise that money. Otherwise, uh, you just have a, either a short career or you have a small portfolio that you build and you stop right there. Exactly. No, I think that's exactly correct. You, you have to start somewhere, right? You run out of your own money and, and you look at the big businesses around, the Googles, the Facebooks, it, the founders don't just have a, a, a wad of cash that's sitting on. They need to 
you know, go out and get investors to help to grow the business. And I think that's really, really important. And sometimes that people can struggle when they're looking to start a real estate business and wrap their head around the fact that they need to raise money from other people, right? So, um, yeah, um, mate, I know you've obviously developed some pretty incredible strategies over your last, you know, what, 17, 16 years uh, with Praxis. What are some of those strategies to help keep your, you know, investors happy and, and, and you know, make sure that you're performing as well at the same time? Well, I think one of the key elements to that, you actually said it in your previous question, and it's two words, it's managing expectations. This business is entirely about expectation management. And and I see this as a mistake that a lot of people make, and you'll find this in, in offering memorandums and um, uh, PPMs from syndicates where they're over-promising uh, on, the, uh, on the return or on their projections because they're trying to make the return look good to attract capital. And that's the wrong way to attract money. I mean, so here at Praxis, what we do is we manage expectations by showing a very realistic and reasonable approach to underwriting our, our opportunities. And, and I say that, you know, we underwrite conservatively, but everybody says that. And I say, no, 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 really, we, <laughs> we, we, we really underwrite conservatively, you know, so it's a matter of, looking at how you're projecting uh, occupancy rates and how you're projecting income growth and and uh, are you managing for the uh, the inevitable adverse cycle that's going to materialize during the hold period and how are you accounting for that are you are, are you forecasting uh, increasing cap rates which means that you have a headwinds to your exit value all of those different components that go into the underwriting of an opportunity is is what we really specialize in 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 making those uh, very realistic and very conservative, so that we can not only perform on what we say we're going to perform on, but actually outperform uh, on what we say. No, it's very very good advice because I think there is a lot of investors, or particularly syndicators out there, that may kind of stretch the truth a little bit, right? That's to trying to attract that capital. And, you know, you know, as well as I do, is that multifamily real estate investing over the last six or seven years has probably experienced the best decade in its entire career, if you're looking back at history. Um, so I, I'm definitely seeing in the market right now that there's a lot of hot, you know, people are overpricing stuff that may not necessarily um, be worth what they're going to say it's worth in, in future. So so with that being said, what type of systems are you implementing in your underwriting? You sort of touched on it a little bit, um, and maybe this is part of the, 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 the software that you've developed um, to help you manage those uh, investors' expectations and to maybe project out those ups and downs and the ebbs and flows that we're inevitable gonna, inevitably going to you know, face in the coming five to six years? Yeah, that's a, that's a compound question. And kind of the first part of your, your question was really a statement of the, the state of the industry. And, and when you talked about what, how some syndicators, you know, they, they promote uh, you know, really high returns to attract capital, there's two ways to attract capital in this business. One way is to throw out a really high rate of return that gets people that you know, either don't know any better or don't care to dive into the weeds uh, attracted to that uh, to that investment. The other way is to uh, is to uh, leverage your your skill, your systems, your track record, your performance, uh, and and your uh, your reputation to attract capital. And then some people will say, well. You know, how do I attract capital when I don't have a track record yet or you know I don't have a, 
you know, the, uh, all the expertise or the experience yet? Uh, and the answer to that is instead of amping up the return to attract the capital, I just would suggest that you're trying to attract the capital from the wrong sources. Uh, you know, don't go to people that you don't know and try to get them to invest in your first deal. Uh, probably not going to happen. So, uh, so to the to the second part of your question on, on what systems to put in play to make sure that those returns that you're offering actually uh, make sense in today's market, I, I the software that I built that that we use here is really an an underwriting model, a financial underwriting model that enables us to basically pull on every different lever there is. And you know, every time I change a number in that thing, it probably performs about a million calculations. But but really, you know, what we're doing is we're looking at what's the current occupancy rate of a property, for example, just giving you an example. And then what's the occupancy rate in the market? Uh, and how are those two uh, different than one another? And this is kind of all the manual part, right? So so now you, you know you have to make an assumption on where you think that occupancy rate is going to be going into the future. Now, if you look at the broker's offering memorandum and their pro forma, it's going to say 5%. And I don't care what market you're in, they're putting 5%. That's your vacancy factor. But you know, the reality is, is you're never going to hit 5%. So, you know, are you going to, you know, looking at what the property is doing now and, and then making an assumption on, on where you think it's going to be while you own it is what's important. And, you know, if you got, I, I can't tell you how many properties I see that are running 3% vacant and we're forecasting seven. And it's just because, you know, that's, that's what you have to do uh, because when that market turns against you, your occupancy rates, your, your vacancy is going to go up to seven if you're lucky. Maybe it goes even higher. So that's, that's one of the key uh, elements. The other pieces that we use is, uh, is cap rate. Uh, I'm, I'm underwriting to an increase in cap rate. So part of our, what our model does is it takes uh, a cap rate inflation factor. And we look at what's, what's the uh, cap rate of a deal today and uh, where do I think it's going to be in three, four, five, ten years? So, so we're taking today's cap rate and we're growing that. Now, a growing cap rate translates into a, a reducing purchase price. So, it's uh, it's it's all about you know again we're we're fighting a headwind and and if we don't have that headwind then we do better. No, that's it's some good some good advice there because I've always thought as well and I'm going to get a bit geeky here I'm on my background in structural engineering so I love getting into the numbers but I see a lot of models that don't really map out the first 12 to 24 months in terms of the reposition accurately in my mind and what I mean by that is that when you go in and get rid of the you know uh, economic vacancy, you're going to have a very large vacancy factor if you're taking over a property that has say seven percent, but maybe the actual you know economic vacancy is more like fifteen, and that can really affect your uh, ramp up or, or cash flow velocity and the the returns to investors in you want. And I think you hit on it really really well, and that's more of a statement that I make just from what I've seen. So. With your exit strategy on your cap rates, what are you typically doing? Is it 50 basis points? Is it 100 basis points? Is it 150 over, uh, say, a five-year hold? We're, we're basically underwriting, in most cases, to a tenth of a percent of inflation factor a year. So right. if today's cap rate is six, it would be a seven on the exit. And uh, you know, as it relates to your, the first part of what you just were, were talking about in terms of economic vacancy, you know, that's something a lot of people tend to forget about economic vacancy and how powerful that is. I mean, I, I can't imagine why, but sometimes tenants don't pay you. 
<laughs> and, and, you know, so, so that means that you've got a, a credit loss, right? Or uh, sometimes you're having difficulty filling your units and you have to offer two weeks free rent. So now you've got concession losses. Uh, sometimes you have a model unit to show to tenants and now you have a non-revenue unit loss that you need to account for. Uh, I, I can't imagine this would ever happen, but sometimes not all your tenants are paying full market rent. <laughs> so you have to have a loss to lease built into your model as well. So, you know, you may have a physical vacancy of five or six percent and an economic vacancy of 13 or 14 percent. And, and the underwriting model needs to account for all of those on an individual basis. So you can break those components out and map them out through the life of your hold. And so we map all of our, uh, all of our financials out for a 10 year hold. Doesn't mean that we have to hold it that long and we can test multiple exit points, but you got to map out 10 years of income. You've got to map out your economic vacancy over the entire lifespan of that investment. And it has to be realistic. No five, none of this 5% stuff. And, and, and you have to have uh, an, an inflating cap rate, in my opinion. And that's, that's how you stay safe. Yeah, that's right. And it, it all boils back down to ec um, investors' expectations and what strategies you're doing to go above and beyond to make sure that your, your investors you know, not only just trust you, but trust that you're going to implement the strategy that you're telling them on the, on the investment memorandum or on the operating agreement or on the PPM. So I think it's very, very important. Is there anything else besides the underwriting that you're doing just in terms of management of, uh, of investors' expectations through communication or, you know, sitting down with them one-on-one -on -one, uh, that is helping you give them, you know, a, a peace of mind that you know what you're doing. Absolutely. You know, obviously quarterly reporting is, uh, is critical. Uh, you know, we send out quarterly reports on each project and include a full set of financials along with our synopsis of, um, of what uh, what's going on at the at the property or with the deal, and in conjunction with that, especially on our uh, our multifamily uh, offerings, we have a comparison chart where we show what was projected uh, in terms of income, expenses, net operating income, et cetera, for the particular quarter in the projection they were given when they decided to make the investment, with a side by side comparison of how we actually did. And I think it's important for people to kind of get some real time uh, data on, you know, are we tracking with that performance? Because, you know, kind of as we were talking about before, uh, with uh, throwing out high returns, it's not important uh, whether your investment is projected to produce 14% or 17%. What's important is that if you projected 14% and you deliver 15%, your investors are going to be happy and they're going to refer other investors. But if you projected 17% and got them 15%, they hate you. <laughs> exactly. No, I think that is, that's exactly right. And hate's a strong word, but <laughs> 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 no, I think that's a, and something that I can definitely take away is um, from this conversation is having that side-by-side -side comparison, because I think you always want to be going back as a good operator. And this is for all the listeners out there who aspire to be a good syndicator and a good operator, showing that side-by-side -side analysis of, hey, this is what we set up. This is what we said we're going to do. This is how we're performing, and this is the difference. And hopefully, it's in the uh, in the blue. 
uh, or in the green, as I, my as my spreadsheet likes to spit it out. You don't want it in the red, but you know you never know. You you, uh, you know market fluctuations can happen, and and certain things, unforeseen conditions can happen. But that's your responsibility, fiduciary responsibility as a syndicator, to make sure you you know you manage those things. So Brian, whereabouts are you investing right now, given where we are in the market cycle? We sort of briefly touched on that before, with you know how hot it is in today's market, and every man and his dog is out there trying to buy a multifamily deal. Yeah, aren't they ever? Um, <laughs> so you know, we originally it's uh, when when we put our multifamily strategy into full swing about ten years ago, we started in the Texas markets, and we were in all of the major Texas metros. We've owned in Dallas, Austin, Houston, and San Antonio. And um, while those are still definitely focused markets for us, certainly the competitive landscape there. Uh, does make it challenging to grow a substantial portfolio, unless of course uh, you know you don't mind how much you pay. So uh, we expanded into the Phoenix market uh, last year. That was uh, our new target. Uh, in 2017, uh, I actually took the leap of uh, taking Praxis to the next level, where where we uh, I brought on uh, three new key uh, team members to help us uh, take it to a national platform. And as a result of that addition, you know, now I've got guys that are bringing 90,000 units of multifamily experience along with them and have owned in dang near every, every state uh, that now uh, are part of Praxis. Uh, we're looking uh, essentially nationwide, but with a particular focus of Central Florida, uh, Atlanta, uh, Texas, Phoenix, some parts of California, uh, and then we also have kind of a secondary focus on markets such as Research Triangle, Charlotte, Denver. Uh, we, we wouldn't mind doing a deal in uh, some of the Utah markets, but in general, we're southern states and, and southeastern states uh, are our primary focus. Nice. And where do you see, you don't, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but I made a comment before that, you know, this is this previous decade for multifamily has probably been its best ever. Um, where do you think we're headed in terms of the overall picture, uh, which is a pretty broad question? <laughs> yeah, it is. And, and I get this uh, question a lot. And, and then they also have the inning question. You know, what inning are we in? Is this the seventh inning? And, you know, and, and nobody really knows. And, you know, the thing about trying to predict what inning you're in is you don't know if the game's going to go to overtime or if it's going to get rained out before the scheduled finish. So uh, predicting an inning really doesn't do you a whole lot of good. Uh, I, I think that uh, the fundamentals right now uh, are very strong. Uh, I think that it's, it's a very favorable climate to uh, be a multifamily owner right now. I also think that valuations have priced in uh, a lot of that good news and, you know, kind of the day of buying a property and having it double in value, you know, in one to two years uh, is a thing of the past, at least for right now. Uh, I do think that you can still make solid investments uh, that will perform very nicely. And I'll, I'll give you an example. I bought a property in the Houston market a, a year and eight months ago. Uh, that uh, we bought for $12 million. And, uh, you know, everybody said I was crazy because oh, it's late and, you know, the oil prices and 
you know, the, the market's gone, you know, you got to pay too much and so on. Uh, yet we're in the process of refinancing that property right now to return capital to the investors and the lender's giving me a $20 million valuation and it's only, you know, it's been less than two years. So, you know, we're in essence expecting to get at least two thirds, if not more of the investors capital returned to them one year sooner than what we had in our business plan, uh, by the way. And, and, uh, you know, so those, those things are out there. You just have to know where to look and you have to, uh, uh, you have to execute the plan correctly. Interesting. That's 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 a that's an incredible thing. I, I was involved in a deal in, in Houston as well. Very similar type of thing. Purchased in 2015 and yeah, has have exited in the the plus 20 million dollar range or sort of refi, I should say. Um, awesome stuff, mate. Talk to me a little bit about just your advice for people who are out there who want to start raising capital. Um, you know, I, I've got down here in my notes, old boys club. That's what sort of it comes to mind when I think of, when people think of multifamily, breaking into the game, raising capital. Is there any sort of advice you can do can give to those newbies out there wanting to go out and, and be like you and have a, a small little meeting with friends and family at the local community center to 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 start changing people's mindsets of of you know pursuing the syndication route? Well, I can say that raising money for the purposes of buying multifamily assets is not really one business. It's actually two businesses. And you have to take each of those businesses very seriously and approach them each in the correct way. So one business is the real estate side. And you know, you've got to be able to find real estate. You've got to be able to buy it right. You've got to be able to underwrite it correctly. And you've got to be able to execute the business plan uh, properly. The other side of the business is the raising money side of the business. And it's a completely different thing. Uh, this is all about uh, developing relationships, earning people's trust, making them comfortable with you and comfortable with your judgment and understanding your track record in your other business, which is the real estate side. So my, my advice to those who are starting out is you gotta do two things. One is you've gotta build your track record. And, and building your track record can take a lot of different forms. And people say, well, how do I build a track record if I don't have money and so on? Well, you, you, you work within your means. I mean, if building your track record means you go flip 10 houses uh, with private bor borrowed money uh, from a private money lender, then that's what you do to, get, to gain real estate experience. Then you buy a duplex. And then you buy a triplex. And it's like, well, that's going to take too long. Well, yeah, it took me 25 years to get to this point, right? So, you know, it's, it's all about building the track record. And then the second uh, piece of advice is to go and seek that capital in the right venue. In other words, if this is your first syndication, uh, you know, don't go to a family office uh, with, with, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to invest in real estate and try to get them to invest in your deal. You know, in fact, you probably won't even have a, a lot of luck at the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, I think you know, where you've got to go is you've got to go to people who already trust you as a person because they're not investing in the real estate. They're investing in you. And, and that's why they're making that investment. Because let's face it, if you don't have a track record, you don't really know what you're doing yet. You're in the rookie mistake phase of your career. And even guys like me have that phase. And I've got the scars to prove it. So, you know, go and find money from those who know you, friends, family, and you know, then you say, well, my friends and family don't have any money. Well, neither did mine. This is not, it's not easy. You've got to keep networking until you get there.
No, that's that's incredible. I think that uh, you, you hit on some really good points, and I love the fact how you broke it down into two different sides of the business. There is the, the real estate side and, and understanding the management, the, the asset management of it, the finding the deals, uh, the underwriting of the deals, and then there's the capital raising side, and that's where people get choked up. And I know when I first started um, syndicating, it's it's nearly like you know pulling two on two different you know cogs. One cog is the deal finding cog, and the other cog is the you know the 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 capital raising cog, and they can sometimes you nearly got to split them up because you may you need you may need a partner, you may need someone in your business who can you know deal with one side of of the other of the of the coin, so you can focus more on what you're good at, which might be capital raising or it might be deal finding. Brian, what does uh, what does the future hold for you in practice and and personally moving forward into 2017 and beyond? Well, we. Uh... I just mentioned it a little bit ago. We brought on three new guys. I, I brought on a, um, uh, a chief investment officer uh, who was with a public, uh, publicly traded real estate investment firm, uh, and headed up their multifamily division. I brought on uh, a CFO who uh, was also with a couple of publicly traded uh, multifamily REITs. And uh, I brought on a CEO of a, a newly formed management company that we will that we're forming to uh, bring management of real estate in house, uh, who brings with him 37,000 units of experience. So we're we're leveraging uh, the new members of my team to grow uh, our footprint geographically, but also to grow our portfolio. You know, we grew this to a thousand unit portfolio. You know, we crossed $100 million in assets under management last year, and now it's time to go after it and, you know, build a 25,000-unit portfolio over the next few years. So that's really what we're focused on. It's all about, um, you know, growing our investor base and growing our asset base, and um, and we're really looking forward to what the future has to hold for Praxis. That's awesome. Congratulations on the uh, the new guys on your team. I think they, it sounds like they're going to add a lot of value to you and maybe take a bit of pressure off you at the same time, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, again, it's hard to run two businesses at once. Of, uh, you know, and and you know, you know, and as you grow it, now they're they're bigger and bigger businesses. And you know, one of the great things that uh, that I did about eight years ago is hired an investor relations director. And, you know, in, in course of doing that, you know, we have one person here in this firm that's dedicated solely to interfacing with uh, with new and existing investors, because, again, one person just can't do it all. And now that I've, I've done that, now it was just finally time to uh, we've done such a great job raising capital. We've got a, a really uh, enormous investor base. And now we need to be able to bring the deal flow to match that capital that we've been successful in bringing in. So uh, this, uh, the two kind of happened at a great time. Nice. Note to self, get a investor relations manager. <laughs> yes, absolutely. That is correct. So, mate, uh, I know this time is precious. So I want to be conscious of your time. But I always ask my, in, you know, my guests on the show to give me their top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? Sure, let's do it. All right, mate, what's the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Uh, I, I think that my, my most consistent habit is that every day I show up here at the office and go after it. Uh, it it's, you have to be consistent and you have to work this business every single day 
including even nights and weekends very often. So I, I think uh, my daily habit of, of, of a strong work ethic is, uh, is what's helped us get here. No, I think that's that's important and and goes back to the what you said earlier in the piece, which is a lot of people go to those those seminars and you know get get sold something that oh this is easy this is easy and and you're out there you know peddling the other the other way which is saying it's a hard slog get get you know strap yourself in and be ready for a long period of time before you know success comes your way particularly in the large multifamily and syndication because you are dealing with uh with with big large amounts of capital, uh Brian what is or who is the most influential person in your career to date. You know, gosh, that's that's a tough one. Um, you know, I uh, I started this business on my own. I was a one man shop for a number of years in the in the uh, in the beginning, and uh, I, I've really I haven't had a mentor. You know, it was all kind of learn on the job. But I think that the the one person that really helped to take our business to the next level uh, was uh, our our largest investor. Uh, who has a family office that took a leap of faith and invested a sizable amount in a deal that enabled us to go and, and acquire a huge portfolio of single-family rental homes at the bottom of the market in Northern California. Uh, that really took our business and put it on the map, and uh, and that was that was really influential to me. Nice. Well, congratulations on uh, first and foremost getting that introduction to a family office because I. I know it's bloody hard to get sit, sit them down and get them interested in what you have to do. So, so well done. I know you'd have to have an influential tool in your business. Being a software guy, by the sounds of it, creating a lot of software, what is it? If it's even a piece of software, it might be your phone. I don't know, but what is the most influential tool in your business today? Uh, I, I think it would be it would be my financial model. Uh, this is a it's it's an Excel based financial model that you know everything that we do all the decisions that we make on the acquisition side are made as a result of the output from this uh, from this model and uh, and we use it every single day and it uh, it's a, it's certainly evolved a lot over time as we've continued to improve it but there's no other tool that we use that's had more of an impact on our ability to not only sharpen our pencil on the acquisition side but to demonstrate the results uh, and projections of that performance to our investors. Awesome stuff. Yeah, I think having a, a polished tool like that is very, very important. And probably also what is just as important is the fact that you created it. You know the ins and outs of it, right? It's not someone else's that you purchase from you know, some guru. It's yours. You understand how it works and you you can tweak it in the way that you know makes sense to you because – the, the person who has the most uh, sweats the most is the person who underwrites the deal and if they're if they're sweating because their assumptions are wrong or they're, they're pretty pretty loose uh, you know you might have a few sleepless nights but uh, but good stuff uh, what has been the biggest failure in your career to date and what have you learned from that failure you know I think probably the biggest one was early on in my career I didn't appreciate the importance of economic conditions and economic vacancy. And those two are very interrelated. And uh, the example is uh, when I bought uh, one of my first large multifamily, in fact, this was the first large multifamily property that I bought. Uh, It was 2008 and uh, the market had fallen dramatically. Uh, And I uh, had the opportunity to buy uh, an apartment complex for half of what the last guy paid. And uh, I thought I was a genius, but 
about five months after I bought it, I had taken the occupancy from it was like 85 or something to 99%. And I think it lasted for about a day. And, and then, uh, then you know what happened in, uh, in, in 2009 when Lehman Brothers collapsed and, you know, and all that stuff, the great financial recession, uh, it changed uh, the world for everyone, but it especially changed it for me. And it, it taught me that you have to underwrite to the worst case scenario because when the worst case scenario happens, it's crushing. And, and that's what happened in this case. Uh, we got we got crushed. Uh, our occupancy dropped from 99% in the 60s. Wow. I used to joke. I would say that you know half the units are empty and the other half aren't paying. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it was just that and that and such it was. You know the uh, the income dropped to the point where it made enough money to pay the operating expenses, but there was no money left over for debt service. So I was at a crossroads where, you know, what do you do? You know, if you walk away, your investors lose their money. That's not a very good option. So the option I chose to take is I began to uh, service the payment on that apartment complex out of my own pocket to the tune of $15,000 a month. And I thought, you know, this will only last a few months probably, uh, but it lasted for about three and a half years. Uh, uh, and uh, it was it was a long time, and uh, and finally the you know the market came around and you know occupancy was back up over time and it started to cash flow again and and we actually just sold that property last year and not only did our investors get all their money back and not only did I get all the money that I had loaned to it back uh, as for making the payments. But uh, everybody made a small profit. And, and while I consider the deal to be a failure, uh, it was probably the most influential lesson of my entire career. And, you know, at least at the time, it cost me a hell of a lot more than any Harvard or Yale education could ever cost. <laughs> so that's that's my biggest failure. No, I think and, and not only you know monetarily that it costs you more, but sort of maybe years of your life as well, sleepless nights, understanding where you're going to find that 15 grand from, right? Yeah, plenty of that. And, you know, and it was uh, it's just one of those things where when when people say, you know, oh, I'm going to go and, you know, I'm going to stretch my assumptions to get this deal. I can say two things. One is, believe me, if you do that, and it doesn't work. It's extremely painful. And then second is it's so much easier to get into a real estate deal than it is to get out of one. So be careful what you get yourself into. 100%, 100%. Well, Brian, you've been an incredible guest today. Where can people reach you to continue the conversation if they have any questions for you? Well, the easiest way to find Praxis is through our website, which is uh, www.praxcap.com, which is P-R-A-X-C-A-P. Dot com. Our contact information is there. There's phone numbers and email addresses on there for uh, for Bob Dreer, my senior vice president of investor relations. He's a great place to start to learn about what we do here. Awesome stuff, mate. Well, I just want to quickly recap on some of the things that I took away from today's conversation, which is you know a few a few major things that I took away was the the managing investors' expectations. I think is a really good one. If you manage that correctly on the front end, you're going to have investors for life. 
the second one was making sure you're underwriting correctly, and that includes understanding, you know, your your economic vacancy and the physical vacancy over the you know the coming times, and understanding, you know, making sure you're underwriting to the worst case scenario. And it still makes sense, then move forward with it. The third piece of advice is that you know when you are raising capital, you got to think of it as like two separate businesses: a real estate business and a capital raising business. Um, Brian, did I leave anything out? You know, I, I think you nailed it. I think that, uh, you know, a syndicator's job is so much more than just to perform on good returns. You know, I think the job, uh, it entails, uh, you know, the investor leveraging your knowledge, your experience, your contacts, your expertise. So, you know, do everything you can to focus on on gaining all of those components to be a well-rounded uh, syndicator. 100%, mate. I couldn't agree more with you. I really, really appreciate the, the insight today and for you taking some time out of your day to join us. So thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of the week and we'll catch up soon. Thanks, Reed. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Well, what an incredible episode with Brian Burke, absolutely cracking entrepreneur. He's totally doing everything right. Over a thousand units has developed an incredible company and really knows his stuff about how to, you know, make sure you're meeting investor expectations and, you know, doing the right thing by your investors. Make sure you're underwriting the deal properly. Prop, properly, I should say, make sure that you are setting those expectations up front and not over-promising. Make sure you under-promise and over-deliver. I think it was one of the biggest takeaway pieces of advice coming out of that conversation. And really looking at the two different types of businesses. It is you know, in syndication, and that is, it's a real estate business and it's also a capital-raising business. And trying to do those two simultaneously can be very, very tough. So make sure you understand when you are starting out as a newbie investor, you understand those two differences and maybe you can partner with someone who has the ability to do one or the other, either one, find cracking deals, or two, find, you might be able to find cracking deals and someone might be able to help you raise capital. All right, guys, if you do have any questions for Brian, please jump up on my website. There's gonna be all the show notes for and a summary of today's show up on there and any links we did mention on today's show will be on my website at rsnpropertygroup.com. I wanna thank you for taking some time out of your day to continue to grow your financial IQ is because that's what we're all about here on this show. We're gonna do this all again next week, so take care, be safe, and remember, happy investing. Thank you.